Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a Labour politician who's already being tipped as a potential future leader of his party. He's a former president of the National Union of Students who worked for the Blairite campaign group Progress before winning his Ilford North parliamentary seat from the Conservatives in 2015, then served as Shadow Secretary of State for Child Poverty before becoming Shadow Health Secretary. West Streeting is a centrist whose supporters say could win back the party's traditional working-class voters without alienating Middle England. He's a gay Christian Cambridge graduate who is also patriotic and tough on crime. But this rising star of the Labour Party grew up in poverty on a council estate in East London and his own grandparents spent time in prison. I wouldn't wish some of the hardships that I've had on anyone, he says. But I look back with appreciation for the resilience that it has taught me and the insight it has given me. It makes me a better politician. We're treating. Thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. That's such an interesting thought. Do you think it's true that actually it is an advantage having had some hardship when you're a politician? I think it can be. And as I said in that quote you read, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But one of the things that I reflect on when talking to kids growing up from backgrounds like mine, when I go and talk in schools in my constituency or elsewhere, is that it's a bit like being an athlete who's run the same distance as a competitor but had to jump hurdles to to get there you are stronger as a result you're, you've run the same course but you've had to clear more hurdles and sometimes you'll and um, fall down you have to pick yourself up and dust yourself down but you learn something in the process and the challenge is to make sure that when you when you reach those hurdles that you can overcome them in either way either by clearing the hurdle ideally but also if you do fall down because life will always throw knocks at you you have to be able to pick yourself up dust yourself down move on and learn from the experience so that's certainly what I think my background has given me or go under them you could go under them <laughs> that's, the, that's the other way to do it but um no I'm not one for kind of crawling along the ground I'd rather, I'd rather jump the hurdles and can you tell us a bit about your childhood home what was the house like where you grew up and what was the surrounding estate like uh, so I grew up on a council estate in Stepney in East London, in the London Borough of Tower Hamlets, which still has some of the highest levels of child poverty in the country. Um, my mum was a young mum, uh, a single mum, although my dad was always in my life. Um, their relationship didn't last. They were uh, My dad was 17, about to turn 18 when I was born. My mum was 18, about to turn 19. So they were very young and... Uh, the first council flat we lived in for the first few years of my life was um, around the corner from where I spent the 10 years or so that followed. Um, it was my mum's first flat outside of growing up at home with her mum. Uh, it was a two-bedroom flat. It was 
uh, a sort of a, a masonette on the first floor, so we had a balcony. Um, and actually, that the first place that looking, I mean, I was really young, so I don't remember it too well, but um, it wasn't too bad. Um, the place we moved to, I think, was worse. I can't, I still can't quite remember why my mum chose to move. It was probably because it was ground floor and it had a kind of a small um, back garden, although we never did anything with it. So it's not always full of dirt or weeds. Um, so it wasn't a kind of well-used back garden. Um, but it, was, it wasn't it was a great place to live, if I'm honest. It was um, pretty dark, particularly downstairs on the ground floor. Um, there wasn't carpet throughout, apart from, you know, gradually my mum managed to kind of get some carpet down in the living room. But it was kind of tiled, which may, meant, meant it was quite cold. Uh, a lot of the rooms lacked wallpaper, so it wasn't it wasn't the kind of place that I would want to invite kids like from school round to play because I was very aware going to their houses that, and actually even going even by the standards of some of our other family also lived in council flats or council houses, it was the kind of the rough end. Um, so it wasn't a great place to grow up. The tragedy is that. I used to think I was so unlucky to grow up in that flat and yet I meet kids in my constituency today growing up in similar levels of poverty but they don't even have a council flat they're shoved from pillar mm. to post in temporary accommodation and grotty bedsits and mm. so looking back I guess we were lucky even with cockroaches from next door we were lucky <laughs> compared to what kids have to, to put up with today. And how tough was it for your mum to make ends meet as a single mother? Because it was, uh, did you go hungry? Did you have difficulty getting school uniform or new shoes? It was hard for her. Um, the benefit system put food in the fridge and money in the electric meter, but there were times when the electricity ran out and the money had gone. So we sat in darkness. Uh, oh, that must have been quite frightening as a child, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I guess it was initially, but you kind of get used to it i'm af- i'm afraid to say it's not something that children should have to get used to but it was kind of you know the moments where you just kind of go oh not this again mm. um but i think the the reason why i never went hungry as a child is my mum would ne- never have allowed that um she would make sacrifices and also she did have the support of extended family right across the east end so it wasn't unusual for us to schlep across from Stepney to Wapping where my nan lived and to sort of raid the fridges and the cupboards whether she was in or not and sort of come back with um, kind of groceries and you know my dad as I said was always in my life he wouldn't see me go without um, my granddad his dad the same in fact every weekend I used to go and stay with my dad and granddad and at the end of the weekend my granddad would send me home with a massive bag of fruit and vegetables and for my mum and um, kind of a bar of chocolate for every day of the week after school which um, most of the time I would have occasionally I'd get to Thursday and wonder where the rest of the chocolate had gone because my <laughs> mum had helped herself um, but but no for that reason hunger wasn't something that I was allowed to experience growing up um, which which was you know a blessing really given everything else but she certainly found it hard and I, I remember particularly around school uniform in particular you mentioned school uniform I remember the massive anxiety that she had around that we used to get some school uniform vouchers that would help. But I remember going to secondary school, that was a big outlay for my mum and my dad was always in work, but still a massive cost and they didn't have a lot of money between them. So things like blazers and PE kit and all the rest of it, football boots to to play football, 
that was a really big stress and anxiety for my parents. And I used to, although that they would kind of try and protect me from those sorts of worries, I would pick up on that mm. and and feel anxious that you know my school uniform was was a financial problem for my family and I'd be worried about how they would pay for things. Mm. And what was it like at Christmas and birthdays? Did your mother manage to save up for those? It really varied. Uh, and again, I'm, I was lucky in the sense that kind of grandparents, my dad, they would always make sure my birthdays were celebrated. But there, there, were, there were lots of years where my mum just didn't have the money. And there were sometimes when I was growing up it felt a bit like it was sort of famine or feast in that sense in that where my mum did have a bit of extra money and she'd been doing silver service waitressing or had work in a pub or she spent some some years working on Camden Market if she had the money I would have the money and I would have the nice things and there would be treats but other times you know it was just that, that wasn't just part of the equation you know my first birthday party that I can remember was in nursery and there used to it used to be the case that people would bring in cakes and the you know parents would kind of provide stuff and there'd be a party at the nursery. And my mum just couldn't afford it, so I was the kind of the odd one out whose birthday it was, and there was no celebration. And I remember the the um, the nursery assistants kind of chipping in and going to get a little Victoria sponge from across from the news agents, and so they they put on a party for me, which was good. That's really nice. Um, yeah, it's a really thoughtful thing. I, and I was too young at that stage to really feel the stigma, I think. As I got older, I started to feel it a bit more in terms of, you know, not being able to afford to have a birthday party or you go to other people's birthday parties but not be able to reciprocate. And what was it like on free school meals? Did you feel there was a sense of stigma there as well? Not in primary school because parents would pay their money at the school reception. Yeah. And it wasn't obvious as to whose parents were going in and whose parents weren't. But by secondary school, I really felt the stigma. And, you know, you used to have to go and collect a dinner ticket, which meant queuing up in a long queue in the school hall in front of all of the other kids. So it was obvious who the free school meal kids were. Mm. And of course, by the time you've done that, you then go and queue again for your food and you hand over your ticket. So it's still obvious who you are. And worse still, by the time you've done that, all the stuff that everyone wants has gone. Mm. So you're left with the kind of probably the health, the, the healthier options <laughs> yeah. that everyone else has gone for the sort of the, the, the turkey drumsticks and <laughs> chips and beans and you're kind of left with the salad and the sandwiches but um but no I did feel the stigma at that mm. point and I really hated it and it's I think schools now have got better ways of trying to design out that kind of stigma for kids on free school meals but I really felt that stigma and you could see the towers of the city of London from the top of your block of, block of flats it was the 1980s and it was the era of sort of greed is good did you feel that was there a sense of unfairness that there was this whole other world going on that you weren't part of Yes, I I felt it particularly, you know, in the 1980s, the London Docklands Development Corporation was in huge, you know, full swing. And there were all of these new blocks springing up and sort of Canary Wharf development and places like that. And we we started to see bits of that, although I didn't think consciously of it at the time. You know, what I did think of at the time was that in my class, there were a mixture of working class and middle class kids the working class kids were either um, white or from particularly from the Bangladeshi community and the middle class kids were overwhelmingly white middle class what we would call the yuppie families who'd kind of moved in as part of the regeneration and as a result of being friends with lots of children from different backgrounds which I think is one of the benefits of both the primary and secondary school that I went to 
you could see the difference and I could see the difference in my my very best friend at primary and secondary school because we went through both together I mean his parents weren't it's not like they were particularly rich you know his dad was a taxi driver his mum worked in an estate agent but they owned their own um, apartment on Shadwell Basin it was a very nice place it was up and coming and you know he when I used to go to his place um there were always treats he always had birthday parties he always got great presents we'd talk about that and um and so I felt the the kind of inequality and it was interesting actually that um you know after I think after I did an interview in the times with with you Rachel um he got in touch to say I've I've realised, you know, in terms of you talking your description of childhood and growing up and the different, I, I realise you're kind of talking about me and I'm I'm really sorry. I had no idea you felt like that. And I was like, you've got nothing to apologise for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I loved going to spend time with him and I loved um, spending time with his family and they were the most lovely, generous, welcoming people. But I did feel that that, that difference in... Did he um, give you a sense of aspiration though as well? Oh, massively. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, he I don't think he appreciates this, but the sort of the, the the close friendship and sometimes competitive nature of our mm-hmm. friendship really spurred me on um we were quite competitive at school um and also he he did introduce ideas to me about where I might go in the future that I I would not necessarily have thought about so I remember very clearly um in our first year at secondary school I think it was when he sort of said are you are you going to go to university? I'm going to go to university. So I said, yeah, well, yeah, I'm going to go to university. I mean, that hadn't really occurred to me at that point, but I thought, well, if you're going, I'm going. <laughs> and so, and then he goes on to say, which university is you going to go to? I'm going to go to Oxford or Cambridge because they're the best universities. So I said, well, that's where I'll be going as well then. And and so that that really helped. And on top of that, I had um, teachers from, from primary right through to secondary school who always saw my potential and really fought my corner and spurred me on and um, encouraged me, encouraged my parents, you know, were very clear with my mum and my dad about where my potential could take me, um, which then meant I got encouragement at home. Uh, And and so, but yeah, with, I, I do think that, again, one of the benefits of going to a school where there are kids from different backgrounds is you, 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 you do encounter people who have different perspectives and it's I think it's one of the things that the middle classes um, and the wealthiest in our country don't always appreciate and take for granted in a sense that you you, you get ambition instilled in you by osmosis and, and it's not that working class parents aren't aspirational for their children I hate this idea that aspiration is middle class and we don't all have aspiration it's it's the connection of aspiration to experience and so you will have people in the family who um have either been or know someone who's been a doctor or a lawyer or a journalist or a politician or an academic and all sorts of careers that that working class kids wouldn't necessarily come into contact with and that that for me is one of the kind of great advantages of genuinely comprehensive education where you've got people from different backgrounds rubbing shoulders together because you influence each other and you pick us you, you you pick up from each other and you learn from each other and that's certainly what I felt I had growing up and and having both a friend who spurred on a competitive spirit and teachers who just saw where I could go and just really championed me that that made a big difference to my life 
And how important was your mum as an influence as well? First of all, was there a sense of stigma towards her as a single mother? Because it was that age when society was quite disapproving. Yeah, I, I remember that very clearly. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I remember the way that some conservative politicians would talk about single parents and single mothers in particular, which is one of the reasons that spurred me to take an interest in politics and the Labour Party. I thought, well, you're definitely not for me and families like mine. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just remember talking to my mum growing up about some of the experiences she had, witnessing some of the experiences she had, particularly at the DSS office, um, where she'd have to go and, you know, sign on or be interviewed from time to time. Um, there, uh, there was a real stigma around single parent families, which I really resented because, you know, I, uh, whatever challenges we were going through and whatever um, disruption or turbulence there was in family life at home, you know, my mum was always there for me and my dad was always there for me. In fact, I spent the second half of my childhood and adolescence living with my dad. So, mm. you know, families are complicated. You know, I'm I'm also conscious of the fact that my parents sacrificed an, aw- an awful lot of their own childhood and adolescence. I, it wasn't until I reached the age of 18 that I really appreciated how terrifying it yeah. must have been. In fact, one of my brothers just turned 18 and I was sort of sat there with him last weekend we got together as a family and looked at him and thought, the idea that you would now have a child <laughs> is absurd. And I have n- cannot imagine how terrified my parents must have been mm. to have a child at that age and what kind of judgment they must have endured. Uh, and also, although we all think we're adults at that age, you know, you realise as you grow up and you're living through your 20s and, you know, looking back on your 20s as I am now approaching 40, you're, you're growing up all the time. You know, I don't think we ever really stop growing up. So I'm just kind of in awe, really, of, of what they must have gone through in order to to bring me up as well as I think they did. Hmm. And your maternal grandfather was an armed robber who was <laughs> in and out of prison. Um, when did you first become aware that he was involved in crime? I went to visit him in prison, um, which was a horrible experience. Uh, How old were you? can't remember. I have to try and place the time with my mum. I was in primary school um, and, uh, you know, the, the process of going and visiting. I took um, a, some cream cakes in for him. Wasn't allowed to take those in, unsurprisingly, and probably quite rightly. Did you eat them then? Uh, no, because they got crushed <laughs> in the locker, so I didn't even get the benefit the dog ate them. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, and... Yeah, that was a horrible experience, kind of seeing him in prison. Uh, and what happened? Did you have to go into the um, visitors' room? Yeah, you go through, and then a... and you, well, actually, we're in a big. My recollection is we were in a big room, and there were lots of people kind of around. Um, so we weren't speaking through glass. Mm. Um, but I remember kind of making him laugh because I sort of said, because well, he was wearing a sort of blue and white striped shirt and some trousers, and I said. Well, I'd, I thought you'd be in like a black and white striped <laughs> top and have a ball and chain round his ankle. Yeah, and, <laughs> just, yeah. That wasn't what it was like, but it was horrible to see him like that. Mm. And, you know, he was in and out of prison throughout my um, early childhood um, and sort of later as, you know, as uh, I sort of watched him lead quite a solitary and pretty miserable life living on his own in a flat um, in South London. 
It must have been around the time that the Crays were the kingpins in the criminal underworld. Were they? Did he interact with them at all? Were they rivals or friends? Or? No, not particularly. He obviously he knew them, uh, and but he wasn't associated with them in that sense. And he was he was kind of more of a, in a lot of his criminal activity more of a South London criminal than a than a than an East London criminal. Um, but you know his his actions had big consequences for the rest of my family. He was in and out of prison throughout my mum's childhood. Um, that made her upbringing really difficult and very painful for her and uh, and her sisters and brother. Uh, my nan also got a criminal conviction as a result of her association with my granddad. Um, and I think it was like over something like a stolen radio, and she she wasn't cooperating with the police, um, and so they did her for a stolen radio that she was in possession of. And as a result, she spent time in prison in Holloway. And at the same time, she was pregnant with my mum. So, And she had a very interesting soulmate, didn't she? She certainly did in, in Christine Keeler, who was at the centre of the Perfumo affair. And um, they they were from very different backgrounds, but they became lifelong friends. And my nan maintained Christine, you know, her view throughout her entire life that Christine Keeler... Um, suffered a terrible miscarriage of justice and should never have been in prison. And actually, I would argue very strongly, I don't think my grandmother should have been in prison either, um, particularly as a pregnant woman for for, for that kind of offence. Uh, and, you know, uh, she went to term in prison. So for the first six weeks of my mum's life, she lived in prison. Uh, and eventually my mum was um, handed into the care of her grandmother until my grandmother was released. And... I just you can look back and think this is just a completely um, given all we know about ludic- attachment. Yeah, theory. it's completely what, outrageous. Yeah. Um, what impact do you think it had on her and therefore on you? Um, well, I, I mean, it's it's three generations, I guess. Um, in my nan's case, I mean, it, it it ruined what I mean. She wouldn't have necessarily appreciated this time, but later in her life, uh, it certainly ruined a career that she could have had in politics. She was really active in the local Labour Party, really active in the Tenants' Union, um, really active in um, sorry, the Claimants' Union and the Tenants' Association. And she was well known across the East End for her kind of campaigning on social justice issues. Um, she was very a- active in the local anti-racism movement. And the Labour Party wanted to stand f- for council, for Town Hamlet's council. And she's just refused to do it because she was worried about her criminal record being brought up and causing embarrassment for her, for the family, for the party. She didn't do it. And I think had she been a councillor, I mean, she might have even become a Labour MP because I think she was formidable. Um, and of course, for my mum, you know, it meant her childhood was really, really disruptive. Um, and, you know, my nan had a really difficult job bringing up children. Um, my granddad's behaviour in and out of prison was very difficult for my nan to have to deal with. They later divorced. Uh, so it had a kind of multi-generational impact. Mm. And for me, I mean, it didn't impact on me so much. Um, you know, I remember the, the times he was in. I remember some of the times he came out. Um, uh, and we used to have lots of conversations. I think one of the great tragedies about my grandfather's life is that when we used to talk about issues like religion or politics or other kind of issues he was extremely well read he did loads of reading in prison 
he was evidently very smart and intelligent. And I think it's a tragedy that he ended up leading the life of crime that he did with all of the consequences it had for his victims, undoubtedly, um, but for my family too. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Wes Streeting. There'll be more from us after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting. Do you think your grandmother and your mother were just determined that you weren't going to end up like that? Was that one of their driving forces that they wanted to get you out of that world? I think I'm, I'm, not, sh- I'm not sure by my, by my generation that they were necessarily convinced that I would have grown up to be a crook. Um, but, um, but there was definitely determination in my mum's, from my mum's part, that as uh, she put it to me some years ago, she she was absolutely determined that I wasn't going to grow up being made to feel stupid in the way that she says she was made to feel. So for as long as I can remember, you know, there was always a bookcase full of books in my bedroom. I'd be read to by my mum and by my my granddad my dad's dad in particular and my dad mm. and your paternal grandfather had been in the merchant navy and he was always wearing a suit to collect you from school and, and was very sort of dapper do do you think that had an effect on you too and did he change you in other ways yeah so um, he was without doubt the um biggest influence on my life um we were incredibly close uh he was certainly my best friend growing up um and we used to share everything you know I talked to him about how I was feeling what I was doing he really nourished my love of learning we used to sit doing stuff at weekends if I could have picked to be anywhere at any time it would always be with my granddad um and and you're right he 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 was from a I mean, I describe in some respects my mum's side of the family as a stereotypical East End family. Um, my dad's side of the family was was a different stereotypical East End family, sort of a traditional working class Tory family, a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of family. And he instilled in me a sense of discipline, hard work, love of queen and country, patriotism and faith. It's so funny thinking back to all the times he would wear a suit. He was always suited and booted. But yeah, he'd come and pick me up from school in his suit and shiny shoes. There are days I look at my shoes. And also <laughs> there are days when I... Ch- it's really funny, but every time I use one of those 
kind of sponges, like shoe shiner sponges, just to kind of touch my shoes up to make sure they're shiny. I just, I, I feel the judgment coming from the <laughs> from like He would be horrified that I would polish my shoes in that way because um, he had that kind of Navy discipline mm. um, and he instilled, well, he tried to instill that in me, not entirely successfully. So what was it like when you got to Cambridge? Did you immediately feel that you fitted in or did you feel um, that you just weren't made for that world of ivory towers? I, I already had a sense that I could fit in because I did a Sutton Trust summer school um, and Sutton Trust is, for those people who don't know, is a um, charity focused on getting working class kids into the most um, uh, academically selective universities. I went on a summer school that gave me a sense that I I would be welcome, that I could fit in, that I should apply. In fact, it changed my... I, it, I originally was thinking of doing um, politics at university and doing history um, through the Sutton Trust at Cambridge made me convinced I wanted to do history at Cambridge but the moment I arrived I loved it and in fact I was talking to um, the master of my college recently um, Roger Mosey and he was talking about the strides that Selwyn which my college has made to increase the proportion of kids coming to um, to Selwyn specifically and Cambridge more generally from state schools and in particular making sure that the state school entrants aren't just the middle class kids at state schools but are working class kids from state schools like me and 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 some of the adjustments they were making to make sure that people felt welcome so thinking about the menu at the first kind of dinner like the big matriculation dinner they would have and you know making sure they don't have dishes on there that feel a bit alien and i said look that's that's good and it, i'm really glad to think that the university is thinking about and the college is thinking about how to make people feel included and welcome i said but make sure you take them out of their comfort zone throughout their time there because you know if they if they go on to do all sorts of careers they will go to dinners where they've not eaten the food that's on the menu um they they will feel a bit like a fish out of water sometimes and that is good preparation and and i embraced the kind of what i would describe the sort of the harry potter elements of cambridge <laughs> mm. you know the formal halls and the gowns Did and you go to the, balls? the summer balls mm. yeah in fact i was president of my college's winter ball um and I loved it. I, so I just threw myself into it. And, and I did have a sort of... My, my sort of attitude on it was, I deserve to be here. Anything they can do, I, I, they being people from wealthier backgrounds, I can do. And that was always... I recently described it in a, in a conversation with James O'Brien as sort of a bit of a working class chip on my shoulder. And maybe chip on my shoulder isn't quite the right um, uh, kind of metaphor because it implies resentment. I've never resented people who come from wealthier backgrounds. Um, uh, but what I have resented is the fact that opportunities are too often dominated by or given to people from wealthier backgrounds. And my, my ambition in politics is to make sure that kids from backgrounds like mine can grow up taking advantage of the world of opportunities that this country has to offer. Mm. Do you think you're just naturally very competitive? Because actually... There's definitely it, a bit of that. And it's great because <laughs> what happens is you don't look at them in a chippy way. You just think, oh, I can do better than them. So it's at school you, you find the person you think, I can do just as well as you. And then at university, there must have been private school children. You obviously just thought, I'm, you know, I can do better than you do. Yeah, and, I, and, and going back to the athletes metaphor, I, I did have some arguments with some of my friends the people who are now friends and became friends at university who were from some of the most elite independent schools about about access to cambridge and 
although we weren't talking about it in those terms then, because it wasn't until I got involved in National Union of Students I started to think more in policy terms about access to higher education. But contextual admissions, so this argument about whether you should take into account someone's background or maybe offer lower grades or the rest of it. I would I would say to, to some of the kids from um from from wealthier backgrounds and elite independent schools, um I, I earned it's not that you don't deserve your place here, but I worked harder for mine. I had to overcome more hurdles and I think that should be taken into account. So it was never for me the sense that private privately educated pupils didn't deserve their place but I that I'd deserved mine. But I did make the argument and felt very strongly about the fact that I had worked harder to get there than kids from wealthier backgrounds. So do you think there should be quotas in business or politics or indeed journalism for uh, people from a certain class? I'm never sure about quotas. Um, I think we should certainly measure it and keep an eye on it and we should press for those quotas to improve and take affirmative action to improve things. I've always been in favour of taking practical steps. I mean, we we would not have 50% of women in the Parliamentary Labour Party were it not for all women shortlists. I understand why people don't like them. Um, I understand the criticism that successive leaders of different political backgrounds in the Labour Party have sometimes misused them to impose preferred candidates and exclude popular favourites. But I think that without that, we would not have achieved 50% women in Parliament. And I think that, you know, affirmative action that goes and actively seeks out, because I do think part of the challenge to break open some of our institutions that are still dominated by the Oxbridge scarf and the old school tie is about actively going out and seeking talent. Because talent is everywhere, opportunity isn't. So let's provide more of those opportunities to find the talent. That's my philosophy. Mm. Do you think you feel more middle class now? Yeah, definitely. I was, you know, I was, I was laughing at the absurdity of people uh, attacking Angela Rayner recently for going to Glyndebourne and enjoying the opera. Um, I just thought the 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 snobbery that a working class woman should not go and have that great cultural experience, um, which I just found bemusing and affronting actually um but you know I, my my accent is plummier now than it was um <laughs> before I went to university and um and in fact it changed over the course of secondary school because I had teachers who would say to me look you need to sharpen up your accent and say your p's and q's and speak prop my, my granddad uh, my, my dad's dad would say you need to speak properly because otherwise people won't take you seriously um uh but um, no, I'm. I kind of. I'm very proud of my working class roots, and I. I certainly. I describe myself as being from a working class background, but I lead a very middle class life. I, I. I lead a comfortable life. I am able to do things that my parents were not able to do when I was growing up. I'm able to to have opportunities that and take have access to opportunities that my parents didn't have. Yeah, I'm. I'm very proud of my working class background I think it's given me lots of advantages but I'm also proud of having escaped the kind of poverty that I grew up in and it's my ambition to make sure that other children don't have to experience what I experienced. Did you have a sense of sort of huge feeling of pressure that you you were going to have to succeed because your whole family really really wanted you to didn't they you were almost like this this child that that could propel them to a different world that you know they wanted you to have a great accent and um, they wanted you to look smart and 
did it just feel you were being very loved or did at times you feel I've got to perform? Yeah, that, that, that's a distinction I was about to draw, actually. I, I, I always felt growing up, my the love of my family was unconditional. Um, there were times where my dad did have to bring a bit of pressure to bear. Like was, There was a time I wobbled around my GCSEs and wasn't taking taking it seriously enough and getting a bit fed up with it all and you know went through that kind of stroppy teenager phase of like oh I can't be bothered oh, I don't want to um, and my dad would be there to say look you've you've come so far you've done so well don't me- don't mess this bit up um, but I never felt there was a difference between that kind of supportive encouragement that he provided and the kind of pressure cooker of you must do well you I, I knew that whatever I did my parents would be proud and supportive so I'd say the love I experienced growing up was unconditional and the support was motivating, not not in any way suffocating. Um, Can you I, remember getting your GCSE or A-level results? Yeah, all of them. Yeah, both of them. Um, uh, GCSEs, I, I wasn't... I, I got... There was a, there was a, there was a debate... At, it, well, it wasn't a debate anyone else was interested in, but there's a debate about whether I got the top GCSEs in the year or whether someone else had, depending on how you looked at them. <laughs> but that was something that very much mattered Bad to me. Bad for somebody competitive. Um, <laughs> yep. Mm. And uh, A-level, I was really, I was so nervous because I genuinely thought I'd mucked up one of my exams. I had a kind of, one of those, and it's the first time it had ever happened to me and it happened again in my first year at university. But I just blanked on one of the questions in my A-level history exam. And it was on the day of the 2001 general election. And I really thought I'd stuff this um, exam. I'd I'd answered two questions. On the third, I'd struggled, bashed out a question and walked out thinking, have I just failed May levels? Um, Or not failed May levels, but have I I just blown my chance of Cambridge? So I had a conditional 3A offer. And this was history, the course I wanted to read. And I went off, um, did some last minute knocking up for John Cryer in Hornchurch in 2001, went to the count, um, went to bed, woke up the next day and was just basically in a state of kind of panic over the weekend and like was in floods of tears thinking I'd blown it and I needed a lot of kind of encouragement from some of my friends and from my dad to say, you can't change the exam that you've had but you can do well in the ones that are to follow. So I picked myself up, carried on. So when I got to, I was genuinely terrified I'd missed my grades and my head of sixth form, um, Mrs Meadows, um, who was a terrifying and, and inspirational woman simultaneously, she kind of said, well, and she, she, I had two slips of paper from two exam boards. So the one slip, she said, well, you've got an A in religious studies. And she looked really downbeat. And then she said, and you've got three A's. And she sort of put the other. So I was like <laughs> ecstatic. And um, the rest of the, the, the day was a bit of a haze because I went to the pub um, with all my friends. But um, I was just in shock. I couldn't believe I'd done it. So that was, that was, a, that was a real, I, I, and I really felt a sense that my life was about to change in a really big mm. way. And I think the pressure I did feel um, in the run-up to going to Cambridge and thinking about some of the hurdles I had to overcome subsequently, particularly financially when I was involved in the National Union of Students and you know, I had financial hurdles about standing for election and being able to carry on in NUS, I was very conscious of the fact that all the time, all the opportunities I was trying to access, all the things I was trying to do, was about escaping where I'd come from and wanting to have something better in the future. Um, so, and I felt that pressure in a self-imposed way. Mm. When was the first time you realised you think you were gay? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, years and years and years before I came out, I, I knew I was gay in secondary school, you know, in sort of my early teens. And I tried 
desperately hard not to be for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Fear, prejudice, uh, fear of prejudice, uh, lack of understanding about what I was going through and trying to comprehend these feelings. Uh, Religion and my Christian faith being an important part of that as well. And, you know, this this was... This was pre-97 and, you know, one of the things I will always be grateful to the last Labour government for is they didn't just change laws, they changed hearts and minds. And I remember growing up thinking, if I'm gay, how can I ever have a successful career? How can I, how will I ever fit in? Um, And what Tony Blair's government did was remarkable in that respect because it, it, it was a way politics in its own way, helped me to feel comfortable in my own skin. And it wasn't until my second year at university that I found the confidence to come out. And when I did, all I can describe, the morning after I told a couple of friends, I woke up and just felt this huge weight off my shoulder. I felt genuinely liberated. Uh, and and, And I think this is the thing about, you know, sometimes you get asked... Do you think people are born gay or do they choose to be gay? And I said, well, I, 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 I can't give you a scientific answer to that question. What I can tell you is that I tried desperately hard not to be gay. And that was a thoroughly miserable experience. And what did your parents say and your family? They were great about it, actually. Um, my dad needed a few days to sort of properly process. Actually, the thing he was most upset about was that he found out kind of secondhand rather than um, from me. And I think that's the thing he found hardest well why didn't you tell me and I explained why and he understood um my mum was absolutely fine my family were absolutely fine I don't think they could have handled it better um and sometimes when people don't have a great experience I mean there are sadly some families who will never be reconciled to it and I've I think that's a horrible position for gay people to find themselves in but sometimes parents need a little bit of time and where friends have been in that situation you know, what I've said is, you know, look, it took me, you know, I, I didn't come out until I was 20. And I can't remember when I first felt felt gay, but if it took me 20 years to accept it, maybe your parents need more than a few days to accept it. And maybe it's hard, but sometimes I think we need to cut, cut our parents a bit of slack. You were head of education at Stonewall, the LGBT charity at one point. Do you think they've become too militant on transgender rights? Well, it was an LGB organisation when I worked there. It became trans-inclusive afterwards. I think that was the right thing to do. I think that Stonewall, over its history, has been an incredibly effective organisation at helping to change laws and change hearts and minds and to do so in a, in a very pragmatic way. I mean, I, I, Stonewall, when I worked there and previously, had always been criticised for being too pragmatic by sections of the community who felt that we should be a bit more demanding. But I think that kind of soft pragmatism was very effective. Um, I think Stonewall has found it hard to uh, find the same approach on trans equality um, in the same way that I think lots of us, whether politicians and political parties or you know society at large, we're, we're finding our way on this issue. And I think the challenge on trans equality is that there are lots of people, for reasons I completely understand and empathise with, want to be at the some people are trans get over it phase of the campaigning. 
but Stonewall didn't do Some People Are Gay Get Over It in 1989. <laughs> mm. They launched that campaign much later when we'd had so many debates and won so many arguments around Section 28, uh, ending discrimination in the military, in provision of goods and services, the introduction of civil partnerships. So by the time we said to the country, some people are gay, get over it, it's because the argument had been overwhelmingly won. There were a, f- a very small number of people who remained vehemently homophobic. And that was the point at which it was right to say, get over it. I think on trans equality, society is still finding its way. And I found, whether in the corridors of the House of Commons and the House of Lords or... Um, around the coffee table with friends society is finding its way and I think that particularly in relation to women's rights and the perceived conflict between um, protecting people on grounds of gender identity and protecting sex-based rights um, I, I think we will make more progress if we're talking to each other rather than across each other um, I think there there are some challenges and some challenging issues that arise and we should be honest about um, those challenges and I, I, I always point to equal marriage as the as the kind of the example really you know th- there was a, a big push to make sure that people had access to same-sex marriage which I strongly supported there were religious objections on grounds of deeply sincerely held faith and you could argue well they're never going to agree And we should just bulldoze through the opposition and impose same-sex marriage on everyone. But in the end, through deliberation and conversation and compromise, we landed with an approach that maybe not everyone loved, but everyone could live with. Same-sex marriage rights were introduced, but no religious institution would be compelled to perform same-sex marriages. And I think in, in, in the space of trans equality, I think we can make so much progress if we're willing to talk and listen and engage and let's take that off social media mm. and let's take it to more productive spaces. And you had your own experience with the NHS um, last year when you got cancer. How did that change your outlook <laughs> on life? Well, I don't know about life. I mean, life, I'm, I, I mean, I've always been full of life, as you probably picked up from our earlier conversation. There's lots I mean, it's, it's been it's been life affirming. I'm grateful to be here and I love the job I'm doing. It's definitely made me a better shadow health secretary because I'm better equipped to be a patient's champion. Now, I wouldn't recommend that to successors as I wouldn't say, go and get cancer. You'll mm. be a great health secretary as a result. I wouldn't recommend the experience. But but more seriously, it, it the experience of the NHS, the, the highs and the lows, I think, have given me a real insight into what's great about the NHS, but also what, what needs to change. And I see myself as the person who wants to be the country's next health secretary as the patient's champion. So looking back to yourself at primary school, say at the age of eight, and too embarrassed to ask your friends around to play at your house, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? It, I was about to say it'll be all, it'll be all right. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I... I I always felt it would be all right in the end. I did I did kind of grow up on, you know, I did grow up on that estate, determined to escape it and not spend the rest of my life living like that. And I always felt I would do it. But, um, yeah, I would just, yeah, the, the advice I'd give my younger self, because there were some difficult, really difficult times in my childhood with things at home with disruptive. I think I would just say, you need to ignore that, keep focused.
And do you think that Britain's ready for a gay prime minister? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> there's no way that I can answer that question without uh, fueling the pre-August silly <laughs> season, which has kicked off about the future of the Labour leadership. Um, because if I say no, well, that's terribly pessimistic and what a miserable note to end on. If I say yes, it's a declaration. Streeting says we're ready for a gay <laughs> prime minister, dropping hints. Um uh, I actually do think the country is ready for um, a gay prime minister, um, but no one should read into that answer. Um, any showing of the leg, mm. any kind of hints that it should be me, um, I because I, I like other people in the shadow cabinet. I've been tearing my hair out about the kind of s- silly season we've had about the, f- the future of the Labour leadership because I I have zero doubt whatsoever that we will be led into the next general election by Keir Starmer, that he will be Britain's next prime minister, that he will be a great prime minister, and I'll be very proud to serve him in his cabinet. We're streeting. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting. The producers were Anya Pierce and Lucy Ditchmont and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book or download the audiobook, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Tony Blair, Lem Sissy and Angela Rayner. And you can listen back to all our previous episodes of Past Imperfect on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.